Hello, my name is Jensi Manhertz, and for my midterm project, I chose to research the state court system in California. Um, I decided to choose California because during the pandemic, I moved in with my sister who lives in Sacramento, California. I was there during the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020. Um, I attended many protests and I even organized some of my own. And as someone who lived there for a couple months in such an eventful and impactful time, I just wanted to learn more about their court system. I'm originally from Connecticut and I just thought that this would give me some insight and learn about a different state for a change. And I also do have interest in working in law in California. So California um, has three levels of courts. So the first is the California Supreme Court, which is considered which is the highest state court whose decisions are considered to be binding in that court. Um, the second is the Court of Appeals. They are divided into six appellate districts based on geography of where you live in California. And then there are the Superior Courts. Um, California is comprised of 58 counties and they each have a Superior or a Trial Court. The Superior Courts hear civil or um, and criminal cases as well as family and juvenile um, probate cases as well. So for the question of how many judges are on each court, in the California Supreme Court, they have one chief justice and then six associate justices, so seven in total, and they are all appointed by the governor. And then in the Court of Appeals, the California legislature has apportioned the number of judges that are given to each of the districts, and it's currently there are currently 106 um, in the superior courts, the California legislature chooses the number of judges on each court and they are elected by voters and there's currently 27 of them. Um, a specialty court in California, um, there are, I think there was about five or six, no, like five, yeah, about five or six of them when I researched, but I chose to look more into the Los Angeles County Juvenile Court. So the Los Angeles County Juvenile Court deals with cases that involve children who are under 18 years old. There are two types of courts within this juvenile division. So there are dependency courts, which include cases that involve um, a non-parental person who has been chosen as like the guardian for a minor. And then there are delinquency courts, which um, handle like crimes committed by minors. So for my research methods, I use a plethora of sources, which are all cited in my uh, work cited. Um, but the two that I used the most and that provided me with probably the most information was www.courts.ca.gov. So this is, um, the website is called the California Courts, the Judicial Branch of California. And the link was very useful. The website was very useful, very helpful. The cover page um, at the top, it shows like um, coronavirus daily updates that they have. And they show legal resources for finding courts for things like traffic tickets it's jury duty all that other stuff and they also have topics you can click on like divorce and small claims just just places where you can find the information to pretty much all of your questions um 
then they when you scroll further down they show the three court systems that are in california they go on to briefly describe them and just provide some information about them and you can click on them and search court cases find services and evil and even oral arguments i believe you can only find oral arguments for the um supreme court cases none of the other ones provide you um with being able to find oral arguments the second um handle or the second um website that was very helpful was actually a twitter account which is at cal courts c-a-l courts and this was the judicial um the California Court Judicial Branch Twitter account. This was also very helpful and useful in my research because they post updates on court decisions. They links, they um, provide links to council meetings and all those different things and information. And I just think that's very useful. It was very useful and helpful in my research. And I just think that's very useful and helpful to the community as well, because the community can see everything laid out for them and they can really um, get involved if they really want to. Um, so we were tasked with finding a trying to find a way inside of the court. And like I stated before, they provide videos of oral arguments of court hearings that um, of the Supreme Court. So I was able to find an or um, a, a lot of oral arguments. Actually, um, I decided to go with the one from September 9th, which was the most recent one. Um, when you f click on the oral argument, it allows you to see the case information and then it allows you to click on the video. So starting with the case information of the September 9th, 2021 oral arguments, they were hearing three cases that day. Um, the first, um, the first one and the last one were actually described as a matter of automatic appeal from a judgment of death, which was, um, considered the issue. And then the second one was um the petition for review after the court of appeals denied a petition for a preemptory writ of mandate so in total the oral arguments lasted over three hours i think it was like three hours and ten minutes about i only um watched the first case um so what I realized was that one person was actually physically in the courtroom. This was the person who was like keeping track of the time and things like that. And he, um, that person called out the name of everyone who joined them. Uh, everybody else was joined via Zoom or some, some technology where they were all face to face and able to communicate with each other face to face. Um, they were all in very professional settings, all dressed up, all everything. And the person who was actually physically in the court doing the time and things like that, he called out everybody's name who was supposed to be there to make sure they were ready, to make sure they were present, to make sure, you know, all the technology and things were working. Um, so the first what happened was the appellant which was Richard Targo I hope I said that right he began by presenting his argument and the what I found very interesting was 
the justices were like able to ask like really in-depth questions and really like break down and like open up this case because um I did mock trial which I know is um definitely a, a really like com complete different setup from how the um the Supreme Court um system is set up at least in California um so in ours you really wouldn't hear much from the judge unless he was responding to objections or things like that but he really wasn't um the judge really wasn't asking questions so the justices really got to ask like very in-depth questions and really pick apart the statements of both the appellant and the respondent who was Christine Bergman so they were able to really pick apart and really um question them and really make sure that not only they were understanding it but also that the appellant and the respondent were each very much understanding what they were presenting to them the justices would also give their opinions on the evidence and the facts that were being presented to them and the same happened on for both sides um so from what i understood of this case i am not the greatest with like terminology and all that stuff and like completely and totally understanding what was really going on so i was i was struggling a little bit but i definitely tried my best and from what i could understand um they were arguing about the information that was originally presented in the opening statements that was presented to the court of appeals and they were saying that evidence was either knowingly or unknowingly not um not provided and that also a witness who took the stand was not mentioned in the opening statements which for when I did mock trial I remember that in the opening statements the attorney chosen on each side to speak for their side would usually go through the list of witnesses and also um give a brief description on them and how they like connected to the case so they were saying that they um knowingly or unknowingly did not say that a particular witness was going to be called to the stand um so then their um counter arguments were presented along with rebuttals and all that and the justices again asked questions made sure that they were really paying attention showed that they were actively listening and what i found very um interesting is that at the end of the hearing um all they did was they announced that the matter was submitted and moved on to the next case which i found to be very interesting because um I don't know if I expected them to make a decision immediately or maybe like talk about it and then come to a conclusion, but I just didn't expect them to just be like, okay, well, the case is submitted and we're going on to the next case. That was definitely very interesting and kind of surprising in my opinion. So next, um, uh, for my research for this project, we were told to research like famous um, state courts facts and things like that. So 
I, a famous or well-known case that I researched in, in California is Riley versus, or Riley v. California, um, which the case actually made it all the way to the Supreme Court, um, where they decided that without a warrant, going through the contents of a cell phone during an arrest was illegal. So the case um, was about David Leon Riley, who um, belonged to a gang in San Diego, California. And on August 2nd of 2009, he opened fire on a rival gang that was driving by. And the rival gang actually were able to obtain Riley's car and drive away. And then on August 22nd, Riley was pulled over. He wasn't driving the stolen car. He was driving another car that was... um, uh, a different car that had an ex- um he was driving on an expired license and registration tags and because of that his license was re- suspended um before a car is impounded the police officers are supposed to do an inventory search of it and they found two guns so he got arrested for the possession of the firearms and then his cell phone was also in his pocket which was taken from him and they went through his phone and they found videos of like um just gang related activity him throwing up gang signs pictures videos all that kind of stuff and so before the case even started Riley um moved to suppress the evidence regarding his gang affiliation so the question then was brought up if the evidence from the phone violated his fourth amendment right of unreasonable searches so in that case um it was a unanimous decision excuse me it was a unanimous decision that it did violate his fourth amendment right to privacy because they did not have a warrant to search through his phone and um they described it as um they described the phone as kind of like a mini computer which um holds a lot of private information and it's different from a traditional item that could get um uh that can get um seized from a person when they're arrested like a wallet or something like that it doesn't store as much information or as as many things as like say your cell phone your cell phone carries like contacts like a whole a whole lot of different things so in that case um i would actually agree with the court's decision because they did not have a warrant and that's just the that's what the law says that you can't the fourth amendment says that you can't search someone's um belongs without a warrant so they were def i definitely agreed with their decision in that case um the next question was to identify a case from my state that made it to the Supreme Court. The previous case did make it to the Supreme Court, but what I found is that there were quite a few cases in California that made it to the Supreme Court, so I just decided to um, choose something different. So, um, the case that I decided to choose was the Department of Homeland Security versus the Regents of the University of California. So, in 2012, the Department of Homeland Security, they had a program created known as DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which basically, um, postponed the deportation of, um, 
children of immigrants who were brought here by their parents as children and they would give them work permits social securities just really trying to integrate them into the united states and so after the election of trump in 2016 and 2017 his administration started to um the department of homeland security began to phase out of daca so they were trying to they were saying that they were just replacing these old policies with new ones but they the obama administration that had created daca um they said that without proper statutory authority and with no established end date and it was unconstitutional exercise of authority by the executive branch um sorry i said the obama administration that is what the trump administration had said on daca about what the obama administration had created um so the question was is the department of homeland security's decision to wind down the deferred action for childhood arrivals policy judicially reviewable and then the second question was is the department of homeland security decision to wind down the daca policy lawful so in the first um question the Department of Homeland Security decision to rescind the DACA program was arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Administrative Procedure Act. So that's the conclusion that they came to on the first question. And then for the second question, they said that they failed to be able to establish a plausible inference that the recession was motivated um, or in violation of the equal protections guaranteed of the Fifth Amendment. So I decided to choose this case because I actually remember hearing about this case a lot during the time that it was going on. I remember during like 2016, 2017, the news was on like every single day in my house. So I remember hearing about this a lot and just a lot of the controversy and things that it stirred up being that this was like one of the first things that the Trump administration decided to do when... um he was first elected so i definitely heard about this a lot and i just i didn't even know that it had come out of california so that was definitely interesting so next um i researched the kind of like the beginnings of the court system in california and like who started it who helped to put it together um so what I found was that there were 48 delegates who helped to draft the um, California state constitution and the California legislature in the December of 1849 um, elected Serenus Clinton Hastings as California's first chief justice and they also elected H.A. Lyons and Nathaniel Bennett as the first associate justices. So I did some more research into Serenus Clinton Hastings. I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, he was a principal. He actually had a lot of different um, jobs, which is very interesting. He was a principal at Norwich Academy in New York. 
Um, he also served in the Missouri War and he commanded the Muscatine Dra Dragoons and three other militias during his time in the war. And his judicial career began um, in around 1837 when he was commissioned as a Justice of the Peace in Wisconsin. And then he was appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Iowa in 1848. However, he only stayed um, as the Supreme, um, he only stayed as the Chief Justice in Iowa for about a year um, before moving to California. And then shortly after moving to California, he was appointed the um he was appointed the first um, chief supreme court justice in california as well which was very interesting um i wanted to research more on why he only stayed in served one year in iowa but i couldn't find very much information about that and then i also researched who was the first like african-american judge in um uh chief uh justice in california and it was uh actually a woman named vena vino or vena hassan spencer and she was the first african-american woman appointed to the judgeship in california so i found that to be very interesting um i, I was i was very shocked to also find out that she was um, that she was, that she was a woman, because I didn't, I didn't know that at all, and that's kind of like breaking two, two walls at the same time, a woman, and she's first African-American, so that was very interesting to learn about. Next, um, I researched about the grand jury, so the question was, does your state require indictments, information both or neither so for the grand jury in california they require indictments the grand jury will hear the evidence and then decide whether the evidence is sufficient enough for a criminal conviction and then an indictment can be made so for um an indictment to be made there has to be a specific amount of jurors who um all who all agree to indict in california there's three different um numbers for the amount of jurors who have to agree to indict based on population so for populations larger than four million there has to be at least 14 jurors and then for populations that are 20,000 or smaller there has to be at least eight and then for all other counties there has to be at least 12. So again I found that very interesting that it's different based on population um and also how when the populations with 20,000 are smaller it's eight and then in all other counties it's 12 so it's higher so the next question was the efforts that um our state has made to if any to reform the grand jury process especially in cases of police brutality or misconduct so in my search to find any information about the reform of the grand jury process in california specifically pertaining to like police brutality and misconduct i wasn't really able to find too many 
but um i was able to find an article from cnn that had actually been posted on october 1st of 2021 and in the article they talked about how on that thursday which i believe was september 30th um there was a series of police reform bills that were signed into law um it was supposed to create a system to like decertify law enforcement officers that engage in serious misconduct and by doing so they're hoping that they will aid in restoring trust between the public and law enforcement um i had like a few questions on that as to what they would consider as serious misconduct and then also as to what evidence would someone have to like give or share for the proper action to be taken if it because if it isn't just like word of mouth or things like that um what are people going to trust and what are people going to think is reliable so i definitely found that article very interesting and i will keep reading up and finding more information on that even after this is done so next we move on to the judicial selection process in california in california they use two different systems of electing their state um court judges and justices so they appoint judges and they also elect judges which is also something that was very interesting that they don't just keep it all the same but that was that was very interesting so for the judges that they appoint um, they appoint justices in the California Supreme Court, and they also appoint the judges on the California Court of Appeals, and the governor appoints um, the justices and the judges in both the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, and he also appoints replacements for vacancies in both of the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals. Um, so, for the judicial appointment process, the for the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, the seven justices and 106 judges are selected by something known as gubernatorial appointment. Literally, I've never heard of that before researching this. I've never heard of that. So the Commission on Judicial Nominee Evaluation, they perform an investigation on the prospective appointees and then they re recommend those people the they recommend them to the governor and the governor isn't bound by these recommendations but if he does um choose someone the commit that the commission of judicial appoints um can approve or veto the governor's choice with a majority vote so basically the commission they review and then they kind of like they give them a list they give the governor like a list of these people who they reviewed and all that stuff and then the governor can hopefully make an informed decision based off of that not a biased decision so the state committee that selects them the appointees is the committee of judicial nominee evaluation and then for um the part the part in california where they elect judges they elect judges for the california superior courts and they just they have to compete in nonpartisan races every even numbered year um 
And for the restrictions that candidates have for elections, such as like spending limits or campaign finance restrictions, um, I found a pamphlet that is called The Ethics in Judicial Election that is specifically um, for California. And it in regards to a spending limit or finances, it says that candidates have the same rights to raise funds as other candidates who like raise funds for public office. They can solicit and hold fundraisers, which are subject to the rules of disclosure and even disqualification if they aren't following the rules. Um, however, they cannot hold fundraisers inside the courthouse. Um, along with other restrictions, candidates cannot make statements or cases um, on issues that could come before the courts, and they also cannot knowingly or, quote, reckless or with, quote, reckless regard for truth that they will misinterpret the identity qualifications, um, etc. of their positions. So basically, like, following the rules of their positions. Um, uh, the question, the next question was asked, do um, our states have uh, ethics rules that keep judges from hearing cases involving campaign donors? Please describe them. I was really, really, really searching for these. I searched everywhere. I was looking through everything, through the pamphlets, the um, restrictions, all that stuff, but I just couldn't find anything on candidates, um, and judges hearing cases about campaign donors I found a lot about like campaign donors and finances and like restrictions and things on those but in regards to hearing cases I really didn't find uh any information about that so then we move on to judicial removal um so for the process of judicial removal in California, the California Commission Commission on Judicial Performance is committed to reviewing the professional and personal conduct of the judges and excuse me, justices. So judges and justices, they have to comply with a California code of judicial conduct. They have to, you know, they have rules just like everybody else. Um, and if they violate any of these standards, um, the judges and justices could be removed in office. They can be impeached by assembly and convicted by two thirds of a Senate or they can or they may be subject to recall elections. So. So in California, um, there wasn't like any really crazy stories of justices or judges that had been impeached, or at least not any that really um, stood out to me to be like, oh my goodness, like that's actually so crazy. But yeah, I had a lot of fun researching and just learning more about California and their system and just all of that stuff and um it was definitely there was definitely a lot of things that I didn't know and that I learned that were very interesting to me and that I 
wouldn't have known otherwise um, if I hadn't researched. So that is my presentation for my midterm project of the state that I researched, which again was California. So thank you for listening.